we've all had the experience at one time or another when you've been uh, reading a book or maybe watching a movie or something on television where you're following along with the story and they've kind of, the writer and director has uh, had you kind of fall in love with whatever the star of the story is and, and your heart is caught up with them. But all of a sudden, the events in their situation keep getting worse and worse and worse. And it comes to a point in the movie or in the story where you might think this might not have a happy ending. You've, you're watching and you're going, oh no, this is not going good for the good guy or the good lady. This is not going well and it might not have a happy ending. Things look like they're just getting darker and darker and darker and things are getting more depressing and more difficult. And like in the back of your mind, you know it probably has a happy ending, but you're like, oh, maybe it doesn't. Maybe this is a tragedy and this is not going to get any better. But then, you know, things change, right? The man, you know, turns back and goes back to the woman. The helicopter comes up over the, over the horizon. Or, you know, Han, Solo, and Chewie come in and, and give Luke cover so he can fly into the Death Star and destroy it. Or Gandalf appears on the, on the eastern hill and, and the battle at Helm's Deep is won. Or Superman flies in at that last moment and things change. Everything pivots in that moment. There's a turning point that happens and everything that before that was previously dark and previously in despair and depressing and your emotions were like down and all of a sudden in that moment, everything starts to lift up and change because of that turning point. We have turning points like that in our lives. This morning, we're coming to a passage of Scripture in the book of Romans that is really the major turning point in the book of Romans. The whole book, the whole letter that the Apostle Paul was writing to the church really turns and pivots on this one section of Scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning. It's Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I'm going to get there in just a minute, but you can turn there. Prior to this passage, for the last number of weeks, we've been talking about all of the problems that Paul was saying that exists in every single person. The apostle Paul in God's word was showing us that, you know what, everybody spiritually is sick. Everybody has evil within them. Everybody falls short of God's holiness and standard. And so everybody is left falling short of this standard, really guilty. And he's gone chapter after chapter, verse after verse, going through all different people and saying, there's really no hope for everybody. And we don't like it sometimes when there's no hope. I think As people, when there's a problem, we want to fix it. And we want to fix it ourselves. And and there's no problem too big that humans aren't like, yeah, we can fix that. Right? I mean, there's nothing too big that we're like, oh, we can fix that. I mean, wherever you stand on the debate of climate change, right? I think the interesting thing is we're like, no, we can fix that. 
Like the whole earth, temperature, season, whatever's happening, you know, no problem. We'll, we'll pass some laws. We'll have some meetings. We can fix that. Whatever the problem is, we want to be able to fix it. We want to make America great again. We want to fix injustice. We want to solve diseases. We want to be able to fix the problem ourselves. One evidence of this, 2006, full-page ad in the New York Times was taken out by Yoko Ono uh, on the anniversary of John Lennon's death. And she got this full-page ad in the New York Times on the anniversary of his death, and she asked that it become a global day of healing. And this is what she said. She said, one day we will be able to say that we healed ourselves. Ono promised. And then she went on to say, and by healing ourselves, we healed our world. And and while that's audacious and that's huge, I don't think that's too far from the way that often we as humans think. Look, there's no problem. We can fix it. You know, we're like Home Depot. You can build it. We can help. And we always want to think that there's, you know, there's a store we can go to. There's a class we can take. There's an idea that's there that eventually we'll figure it out. We'll get some smart people on it. We got a lot of smart people down in Boston. You know, you give them the problem long enough with enough people and enough time, they'll come up with a solution. What Paul has been saying is there's a problem that we all have that nobody can fix. And I'd summarize it best by the colloquialism we often use, that nobody's perfect. And we use that term because we know it's true, but we use it to excuse our imperfection. And what the Bible and what God says is it's really not an excuse, it's really an accusation. It really kind of accuses us and say, you know what, nobody is perfect. So none of us are going to pass the grade. None of us are going to make the test. I mean, if God's perfect and he's good and that's like his standard because he can't let, you know, if he's good and perfect and holy, he can't let unholiness and ungoodness into his presence. So nobody's perfect. So none of us are going to make it. And so Paul's been presenting this problem in this situation for the last three chapters. And so things have been getting just like in the movie, darker and darker and darker and more dismal, and you've probably got tired of me for three sermons talking about how nobody's worthy and nobody's... But finally this morning, we hit a turning point, and the turning point comes with two important words. But now. But now. And these words may not seem significant, and when you're reading, you probably read right over them quickly because you want to get to the other important words that come after it. But really, these two words are huge. But now. The verse represents a turning point. At length, Paul has been arguing that no one is good enough. The no- everyone has enough knowledge of God just to make them guilty. Even if they can just look around them and say, well, somebody must have created this. But then they go on and live lives for themselves. Paul says, we have just enough knowledge to make all of us guilty. And that's the situation that we're in. The religious don't measure up to their knowledge because they end up doing the very same things they condemn in others. No one's good enough to meet God's standards and God's standards are not changing He's God and he won't compromise himself. So where does that leave us in a pretty dark, depressing, hopeless situation? But now. But acknowledges that all 
all that has come before is true, but there's also something different that's true. But it's an adversative. It changes whatever was just being said or talked about. It's like when you're going in and talking to your boss, you know, and you know, the, the, however the meeting starts and they're like giving you praise and giving, you know, things are going great. Things are awesome. You're knocking it out of the park. You're doing great. And then he says, but, and you know, whatever's coming next is going to be an adversative to whatever came before. Is the conversation is about to change. Otherwise, it's an and. But if it's a but, you know something's going to change. Or the opposite, if you go in the meeting and they're like, oh, man, things have been tough. You know, it just hasn't been great. We haven't had a great quarter. We haven't hit our marks. We haven't hit our numbers. But something's going to change. But things are, look, this is how things are on the horizon. Things are different. And you know the conversation from that point is going to change. But is a powerful word. It recognizes everything before it is true, but everything after it is also true, and it changes things. It's the pivot point, the fulcrum, the peak. It's that top of the roller coaster where you're paused for a moment, and then everything changes in an instant. It's the hinge on the door of theology that it swings on And it's the hinge that this book and this letter swings on. And now, now is a temporal word. Now is saying that things previously were different, but now something's going to change. Now is not what happened. Now is not what's going to happen. Now is what's happening. And so when you put these two words together, but now you get a difference of what was in the past and what is now. And so Paul starts off, but now. And so let's look at it. Romans chapter 3, verses 30, uh, 21 to 31. And let's talk about what's different. Because previously, up to this point, Paul has been saying, look, if it's up to the law, we're all guilty and no one's going to measure up. And that's been the standard up to the po- this point. Verse 21. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Let me stop there just for a second. That's, that's, that's an important sentence at the end of verse 26. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. In other words... God is, what he's saying is, God is just in justifying the unjust. And you don't catch it in English as much, but in Greek, they're the same exact root word all the way through that. And it's really kind of a play on words. And what what Paul is saying, you know, not to miss this point, this fulfills God's justice in order to justify the unjust, which gives hope to us. Because it allows God to maintain his integrity and still offer us justice and justify us where then is boasting it is excluded on what principle on that of observing the law no but on that of faith 
For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by, his faith, by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Paul, in this passage, is giving us hope. It's a turning point. He's saying, but now there's a righteousness that exists apart from the law. Apart from the law that you and I can't keep anyway, so there's no hope, so we're desperate, we're depressed, there's no hope. But Paul says, there's something else. There's another way, and it's apart from the law. Three quick questions and three quick answers. How is it attained? Who's it for? How much does it cost? I'm going to run through these questions really quickly. They're in the answers are in this passage. How is salvation attained? Paul just says it's through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus. That's how salvation is attained. I can say that, and maybe you're sitting in a church and you think, oh, that makes sense. But often it's not in the hearts of us as people. Often we think it is maybe through faith in Jesus and something else. Like we have to do something for it. Comedian Jay Weno once conducted a man-on-the-street interview by asking random people to ask one, to name one of the Ten Commandments. And so this ten, they got, they got a pretty good shot of getting on right, but more often than not, you know the greatest response that he heard? The greatest response that he heard was, God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> Which is something many people think is in the Bible, in the Ten Commandments, but it's actually in neither. It's not in the Bible or in the Ten Commandments. It actually has its roots in a lot of other fables and stories um, that, that are present, but it's not actually in the Bible. And yet many people thought that the greatest thing was God helps those who help themselves in the, command, in the Ten Commandments. Because I think there's something within us that thinks, well, if God's going to do something for me, I've got to do something for him. Righteousness comes from the law through faith. And faith in this instance does not mean what people often think it means, that kind of blind hope that something might be true. Faith is a transfer of trust from myself to someone else. We demonstrate faith all the time. We demonstrate faith in other people. You would not have left your house this morning if you did not have some measure of faith. You demonstrate faith that the driver on the other side of the road is not going to cross the yellow line and run head on into you. You demonstrate faith in your mechanic when you bring the car to him that he's going to have some knowledge and be able to fix it. You demonstrate faith in a doctor to provide healing. I trust her when she gives me a prescription and tells me to take this that it will make me feel better. I trust the pharmacist when he gives me the pills even though I have no idea what's in that little white pill or yellow pill, but I trust and have faith that they are giving me something that is helpful and not hurtful for me. We demonstrate faith all the time in people. Faith is a big part of our lives. Without it, we would just sit in our house and never leave it. Paul is saying that salvation is also achieved through faith. But it is not any faith, it's not just any faith. It's not just a matter of believing harder. Paul says it's faith in Jesus and in his work. See, some people think if you just believe hard enough, that's all you need. 
Pastor Tim Keller illustrates it uh, this way. He says, I may have a great unshakable faith in my ability, in the ability of feathers strapped to my arms to fly me from the U.S. to the U.K., but I have put my faith in the wrong place. Equally, I may have just barely enough faith to board a transatlantic flight, trembling nervously as I do, and yet the object of my faith will accomplish what it promises. It's not faith that saves. It's not even faith in God that saves. It is faith in Jesus Christ. So, Paul is saying, look, we're saved not through your works, not through your actions, but simply through faith in Jesus Christ. You have faith that your doctor will help heal your physical illness. Who do you have faith in to deal with your spiritual sickness? Many will have faith in themselves, saying and believing their good will outweigh their bad in comparing themselves to others. In this, they're really putting their faith in the law and their ability to keep it and for it to save them. Others will have faith in their own intellect, saying, well, there is no God, and there's nothing after this world, so there's no need to worry about it. Paul is saying the only thing that can save people who will never keep the law is faith in Jesus Christ and his redemptive work, the redemptive work of his work on the cross, So it's not just having faith. It's having faith in Jesus that Paul says is what saves. So who is it for? Who is it for? If that's how it's attained, who is it for? And Paul says in verse 22, all who believe. All who believe. He just spent a great amount of time arguing that everyone is condemned And he lets us know in verse 23, once again, that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. So he makes sure to tell us that salvation is also available to all who believe. You who are sitting in this room, those who are town of Burlington, who are close to this building and maybe very far from God, the orphan in Swaziland, anyone, all who believe. That's one of the reasons why John 3.16 is such a popular verse for Christians. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The idea is that you and I are part of the whoever. We're all equally condemned, but we all are equally offered salvation through Jesus Many people believe that the offer of salvation is for someone else. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and maybe you've come to church for many years and you're glad, you know, you're glad for church, you're glad for the message, but maybe you've sat through messages year after year and to be honest, if you're honest with yourself, you don't always think it applies to you. You don't always put yourself in that whosoever, not because you feel too good, but because you feel too bad because of something you've done or something done to you, something you've experienced, something maybe you were a victim of something or maybe you didn't have a choice and someone did something to you and for some reason you think you're bad and you know that that applies to everyone else but not to you and Paul is saying to all who believe, all who believe, all need it 
and it's available to everyone who believes. Sometimes we don't want to accept it. In fact, we'd rather live out some self-imposed, self-inflicted penance, not forgiving ourselves and thinking that we beat ourselves up and somehow that'll make us more acceptable to God. And Paul says, no, that's not going to do it. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only thing that's pleasing, that'll take care of any guilt that you and I might have, which is good news because you don't have to beat yourself up. You can accept and receive forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. You don't have to do this self-inflicted penance. That's not what God asks for. Jesus already paid that price. Just ask you to put your faith and your trust in him. The gift is for all who believe. Some want to tell you that it's for all regardless of whether they believe. This would be a belief called universalism. That everyone's going to get saved. Everyone makes it to heaven regardless if they want it or not. But Paul says it is available for all. But you've got to put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's for all who believe. Faith is the critical component. So what does it cost? Final question. What does it cost? Who, how is it attained through faith in Jesus Christ? Who is it for? Everyone who believes. What does it cost? Paul says it's offered to you freely. Freely justified. The cost is you giving up trying to pay the cost. The cost is you coming to the place where you finally realize that I can't earn this on my own. And this is maybe the hardest part for us to believe and understand. Because it may be more blessed to give than to receive, but sometimes it's a lot harder to receive than to give. You know what I'm talking about. Someone shows up to your house and they, you know, and they've brought you this beautiful gift and you realize you didn't get them anything and you don't have time to get them anything now and all you can do is just receive. And instead of feeling blessed, instead of feeling like, oh, this is wonderful, what do we feel? We feel guilty. We feel like, oh, I should have brought them a gift. We're beating ourselves up. And so sometimes it's harder to receive than it is to give. You go to a restaurant, you go out to eat, and someone picks up the check before you have a chance. And you're like, well, well, let me get the tip. Let me do this. Let me do this. Because you feel like you have to give back. You have to contribute. We can't just receive a gift. And yet this gift, this salvation, that's the only way it's received. Strictly as a gift. That same feeling you have when someone shows up with a gift that you can't pay for, someone picks up the check at dinner, is that same feeling some of us have when we come to salvation and we say, no, 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 Uh, God, let me me get some of this. Let me me, me pick up the tip. Let me, you know, I got, got, you know, I can't get it all, but let, let me take care of some. God says, no, you don't, you can't do it. See, the thing is, you don't even have the right currency. You don't, even, you, don't even, you don't even have the right currency. And maybe that's a little foreign to us. You know, you travel internationally, and Jenny was saying, you know, it's great. American dollars are, you know, are good in Swaziland. And a lot of countries you go to, they'll take American dollars. So we don't always necessarily maybe understand this, but there's places where you go, and you're like, your currency is no good. 
So if I went out to the Bancroft this afternoon and, and, you know, ordered a couple great steaks and these great meals and racked up a bill of a couple hundred dollars, and then the bill comes and I, and I put in some, uh, I put in like a million Swaziland dollars, whatever a Swaziland currency is, I can't remember. I'm sure they're not dollars. But, you know, I put in, and, and, and they look at it and they're like, um, yeah, this is, what are you doing? This, is, this isn't going to work. And they're like, no, no, trust me, million, that's going to cover it. It's like, you don't even have, you might as well be trying to pay in Legos. <laughs> you don't have the right currency. You, you're coming to the table and you don't even have the right currency to pay the bill that you've incurred. And that's kind of what Paul's saying. You, you could, we couldn't pay the bill if we tried. We're not even, we're not, we don't even have that right currency because the only currency is the perfect sacrifice, the atonement of Jesus Christ. Now, it's simple to receive. All you got to do is put your faith in him. But our pride says, no, I want to give something. I need to contribute to it. Freely given. Freely received. And that's hard for us. In fact, I think that keeps a lot of people from following Christ. Because it's hard to accept a free gift that you cannot pay for that you cannot contribute anything to. But through faith in Jesus, you need to receive. And because it's received freely, Paul says there's no reason to boast. You've got nothing to boast about because you didn't do anything. You didn't do anything to make it happen. It's the opposite of the old Marines ad. I, I, I used to, you know, you see these ads sometimes, these military ads, and, you know, it gets you like, going and like motivates you. And there used to be one that, I, you know, every time I saw it was like, you know, I'd get those like tingly feelings in me. It was that one where they would have the, uh, have the saber, right? And at the end of it, they would have this beautiful marine saber and they would say, earned, not given, right? After they show them going through all these difficult things, they would say, you know, earned, not given. And I would say the gospel is just the opposite. Given, not earned. And there's nothing that we can do to earn it. There's nothing we contribute to it. Freely given. Freely given. You can't save your own soul. And God will not save anyone who tries to earn salvation, but only those who will humbly receive it as a gift through Jesus Christ. One person put it this way. Dana Ortland in a book said, Christianity is the unreligion. It turns all our religious instincts on their heads. The ancient Greeks told us to be moderate by knowing our inclinations. The Romans told us to be strong by ordering our lives. Buddhism tells us to be disillusioned by annihilating our consciousness. Hinduism tells us to be absorbed by merging our souls. Islam tells us to be submissive by subjecting our wills. Agnosticism tells us to be at peace by ignoring our doubts. Moralism tells us to be good by discharging our obligations. Only the gospel tells us to be free by acknowledging our failure. Christianity is the unreligion because it is the one faith whose founder tells us to bring not our doing, but our need. And that's what it is. It's freely given, not earned, but given. And Jesus says, you just have to come to the place 
where the only cost is realizing and coming to the place that there is no cost to you, that it is given to you. 2006, Warren Buffett, at that time, the second richest man in the world, announced that he would donate 85% of his $44 billion, 85% of his fortune to five charitable foundations. Commenting on this extreme level of generosity, Buffett said, there is more than one way to get to heaven, but this is a great way. And I think that's very generous of Mr. Buffett. And I am glad that he would use his money for good rather than keeping it for himself. And that's wonderful. And I think that's a good use of funds and a good use of money. And, and, and I applaud him in that. It's just not a way to get to heaven. It's just not a way to get to heaven, at least not according to Scripture. Not according to Paul. We all want to contribute something. And I'm sure someone, Mr. Buffett's, I've never faced the temptations he's faced. I might like a chance at it sometime, but I've never faced those temptations of having $44 billion and what those temptations bring. But I imagine one temptation is to put faith in yourself, to never want to receive anything, to always be the giver. And with salvation, it just doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Paul says, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. If you insist on trusting in your own efforts for salvation, you will die trying. But if you put your faith in Jesus, you can live free. And that's what Christ offers. That's what he offers to you. I'm going to ask our musicians to come back and we'll close out our service in uh, prayer. And maybe you're here this morning and uh, you need that turning point in your life. What the scriptures teach us this morning is it's available for you. I don't know your story. I don't know everyone sitting in these seats. I don't know what you've experienced. I don't know the pain in your life. I don't know the pain that you have caused in your life. All I know is what the scriptures say, what Paul says, what's true for me and is true for you, that salvation, that your spiritual sickness, that forgiveness is available through faith in Jesus Christ, freely offered to you to be justified even though you are unjust because of the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Last illustration, I'll close with this. One of the uh, most um, meaningful gifts that I've ever given to anyone um, it was a gift that I gave to Wendy, my wife. It wasn't the most expensive gift I've ever given to her, but it was perhaps the most meaningful gift I've ever given to her, and that was on July 19th, 1997, to put a wedding ring on her finger. And a little story behind that ring, when we got engaged, I was in college, and I was paying for college or trying to pay for college, working a part-time job and, you know, doing everything you need to do to, to try and make ends meet. And, you know, many of you know what that's like. And so I knew I wanted to marry this woman. I knew I wanted to get engaged. I knew I wanted to ask her to marry me. I knew I didn't want to lose her, but I also knew what was in my checkbook. And that wasn't going to buy a wedding ring or an engagement ring. 
And so I'm stuck in this place where it's like, you know, delivering pizzas isn't going to cut it. And yet um, I knew that this is what I wanted to do. And so I had a friend of mine um, who was uh, in a relationship that didn't work out. And so I had a girl I wanted to marry and no ring. He had a ring and no girl. (laughs) No, wait, I didn't do that. I know what you're thinking. (laughs) Here's what he said. He said, look, I've got this ring and things didn't work out with, you know, with with my girlfriend and we're not going to get married. He said, I'd like you to have it. And... And for you to use it to ask Wendy. And he, he said, why don't we go down to the jewelry store? We'll exchange it. We'll give him the ring. You can pick out one that you think Wendy would like. And, and, um, and it's just my gift to you guys. And I thought, well, I, you know, I can't do that. That's, that's too generous. And, and I, you know, there's, there's no way I can accept that gift. But I will. Because, um, because I'm going to receive. And... And it is hard sometimes to receive. But in that case, I'm like, look, I want to marry this girl. And then I don't know any other way to make it happen. This is God's provision. Thank you, God. But here's the thing. There's a little, for a long time, there was a little part of me. And Wendy knows the story of the ring. This isn't news to her this morning, okay? So everyone's like, oh, I feel bad, right? Um, but for the longest time, when I looked at that ring, there's a little part of me that felt a little guilty. Like, I, like, I didn't really, in fact, one time I think I said to her, you know, maybe we should get you a new ring. You know, we make a little more money now. We can, you know, we can afford to actually buy a ring and maybe we can get you a little bigger diamond and get you a little, you know, ring. And and she's like, no, 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 this this is perfect. This is my ring. This is, this, this is what I want. And there's a little part of me that felt guilty for a while for not earning it, right? For not paying the cost for it. But then something hit me. Then a reality finally occurred to me. I don't know why it sometimes takes so long for these realities to occur to me. It's not about the ring. The truth is, I didn't earn or deserve the finger that the ring is on or the person that wears the ring, right? I mean, the real truth is, there's nothing I could do to buy earn or deserve to be loved the way that my wife loves me. And that's the way love works, right? You don't buy it. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's freely given. And as much as you and I want to contribute something and earn something for our salvation, it just doesn't work that way. The only way the salvation for our sins is if it's given freely and received freely. God is a debtor to no one. We have to receive it through his grace. And I pray that if you have never done that, that this morning would be your turning point and that you would have the strength to humble yourself, to recognize that you can't pay the cost but God was willing to pay it for you. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come before you this morning in light of your word and our guilt. 
We may not like that word in our society and our world tries to erase words like guilt and shame for our vocabulary. But the truth is, if we're honest with ourselves in moments like this, we know that there are times when there's evil in our heart and we are guilty. We are guilty of not making the grade, of missing the mark, of certainly not living up to your perfect law. And apart from Christ, we are left hopeless in that situation. But thank you for Jesus. Thank you for making a way for righteousness apart from the law. And as we're praying this morning, if you're here this morning, if you've never taken that turning point, your head bowed and your eyes closed with no one looking around because it's really just about you and God that this morning, if you'd like to make that turning point and say, God, I want to put my faith in Jesus Christ and not in myself, I encourage you in your own words, in your own space to talk to God. Maybe that's foreign to you. Maybe you've not done that. But God, if you talk, you speak, God hears you. And he says, whoever will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that they will be saved. Your guilt is washed away. Your shame is washed away. That debt that you couldn't pay has been paid by Jesus. And I encourage you, if you've never done that this before, that this morning, make today... May 15, 2016, make it your turning point that your life pivots on. Father, I pray for, Lord, everyone in this room, that we would bring us all, if we've not come there before, and if we have not come there this morning, I pray that every person in this room will at some point, through your grace, come to the place but we will put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.